And hello, welcome again to another episode of the Robert Barham Show. I'm Robert Barham, and we're here with another wonderful guest today, my longtime friend, Mr. Blaine Kapach, comedian, extraordinaire, writer, you name it. Blaine, welcome to the show today. How are you? I'm fine, Doc. Thank you for having me. I call you Doc. I know you're Robert now. I call you Doc. That's all right. I've got friends who call me Doc and friends who call me Robert. It doesn't really matter. So <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for clearing up the confusion. That's um, okay. Yeah. Sorry if I sorry if I uh, reflexively call you call you Doc. You feel free to call me that reflexively or un- unreflexively. Plain. Yeah, I should call you Doctor Robert, but then we'd have to pay for uh, the rights to Beatles songs, and those things are through the roof. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about yourself. You, uh, I just said that you are a comedian. You are a writer. What are some of the other roles that you 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 actually uh, are involved in, Blaine? Are you do you act at all? Do you do any any uh, performing these days still? You know, uh, I don't. I don't do a lot of acting. I don't think I'm a very good actor. I've seen myself act. I look like I'm waiting to say my lines. That's. <laughs> well, you, uh, now you did do that for a while, right? Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've acted. I've been in some stuff. Uh, lately, I've been. Uh, what am I doing now? Uh, the last thing I did before the unpleasantness was uh, Lucha Vavoom, which is Mexican wrestling and burlesque that we do downtown at the Mayan. We've been doing that for seventeen or eighteen years. Wow! Uh, this is the first time we've had to cancel Cinco de Mayo because of the the Corona thing. Because uh, they ran out more. Well, we'll do some more bad beer jokes with uh, the coronavirus. <laughs> uh, the uh, so I host the Lucha Vavoom thing. I did. I was uh, announcing roller derbies for a while. I was playing in a band with some comedians. We wear masks and have go-go girls play all over LA. That was fun. What was your uh, What was your uh, instrument? Uh, I play guitar. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was just fun, stupid fun. Like I said, we would wear a mask so we wouldn't have to worry about how our hair looked. Who were some of the, would I recognize some of the other comedians? Uh, Ron Lynch, uh-huh. one of the funniest, funniest men on earth. Uh, Craig Anton, do you know Craig? I do, I remember him from San Francisco is where yeah. we, uh, we met. Yeah, Craig is, uh, uh, he's, uh, he's a, uh, an acting professor in Savannah, Georgia right now. So he's, uh, he's out of town, but Craig Anton and... Uh, Amit Edelman, who was running the Steve Allen Theater, the late great Steve Allen Theater here in the Los Angeles. But uh, yeah, and we would go out and just play a lot of stupid garage gigs. That was fun. But uh, that was certainly more, more dilettante, not a professional venture. So for but, uh, and then you know, just I write when I can, and I go out and do stand up when I can. I, I'm usually I'm at, at home. My wife is an animator, and so uh, she works at home. I go out and do shows when I well. I mean, not right now. That looks like that's going to be kind of off the table for uh, the foreseeable future. But uh, yeah, lots of writing, that kind of stuff, Doc. I'm sorry if it if I just rambled. <laughs> you didn't ramble. I actually I was just really curious of what what kind of things that you've done since we've met. I mean, we met uh, many years ago. Now, if I reflect, it's probably, it's probably what, uh, more than 30 years now that we've known one another? Do you remember the first gig that we met one another on? It must have been in in D.C. somewhere. Yeah, Uh, probably living. Probably probably a Garvin's. Uh Uh, Unless you came up to Baltimore to do something. But it's every... I don't know. It's some sort of cross dissolve of you into my life for both of us, I guess. Right. But, uh, but yeah, it had to have been in DC somewhere. 
And then I, we were talking about this the other day. We, uh, we, we had that gig in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh-huh. I drove down from Baltimore and picked you up. We drove out to Youngstown, yep. did that horrible hotel gig, and then drove home. Oh, that, God. When I fell in love with, with the, uh, because of that, uh, that drive, I believe, that's when I fell in love with the Honda. Ah. You were the one who told me that you had gotten something like a quarter million miles on your Honda. And you had, yeah. did you, you had a, it wasn't an Accord, was it? Uh, what? Now I had a, an 89 Civic hatchback and I had 212,000 miles on the original clutch. And uh, I drove it, I drove it across the country three times. I moved to San Francisco with it. I lived in San Francisco for a few years with it. I moved to LA with it. And then, I remember I, I got a new car in 98. I traded it in for a 98 Civic. And I had to, I cried. I told the salesman, I was like, you have to leave me alone for a couple minutes with my car. Took a bunch of pictures. I was very sad. That was a great car. Yeah, I actually ended up getting a Honda Accord because of that influence, believe it or not. I got, I love that Honda Accord. I was living out in the, the valley in Los Angeles and I remember going out to the lot and finding it, falling in love with that car and taking it for a drive. And I remember right after I signed the check and drove off the lot, I was driving down the road and I drove extra slow below the speed limit. And uh, I remember my hands were lightly on the steering wheel and I actually went into some sort of altered state of consciousness while I was driving the car going, this is (laughs) happening. I own a Honda Accord. It's all mine. Amazing. And then right in, up the curb and onto the fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> so, Blaine, you uh, now reside in Los Angeles. You're originally from, if I remember, you're originally from York. Yes. Is that right? And then you were living in Baltimore. That was when we first met. And then you relocated to San Francisco and eventually went to Los Angeles, where you are now. Is that right? That is correct. Huh. All right. Now, I, what I wanted to know is... You and I met way back then. I don't remember the exact year. One of the things in my mind that I remember is seeing you over at the uh, that comedy club that was in the, the I think it was the basement of the hotel in Roanoke. And I remember watching you MC. And oh, wow. You, that was one of my moments where um, it was not all that dissimilar from when I saw the Dennis Miller live. Uh, and I remember watching <laughs> you and going... Uh, whether you like Dennis Miller or not, I saw him at George Washington University, and I thought, I didn't know you could do that. All those obscure references and intelligent uh, jokes like that. And it was a little bit like that. I remember standing at the back of the room and walking in and watching you and going, wow, I didn't know you could do that because you were getting away with exactly that. Doing, really <laughs> doing Dennis Miller's material. <laughs> Uh, well, hey, first of all, thank you. I, I got, I got to say, I know, uh, I know Dennis takes a lot of heat. I think the, the politics diverged a little bit, but I will say Dennis Miller's black and white special is one of the funniest hours of standup I've ever seen. It's a fantastic it, special. It, it looks fantastic. And it's also really brilliant material. That's in super there. sharp. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, the, I don't want to get into the, I don't want to get into any of that stuff, but yeah, yeah. I have no problem with Dennis Miller. I think he's a, a, a wonderfully funny guy. Yeah. Well, I remember watching it. I mean, you, these jokes I remember you doing, and this goes way back, but I remember you, and I hope you don't mind me referring to some of the jokes that are so old because they're still funny, but things <laughs> like, uh, um, it was a joke about one track mind and a track mind. Oh, oh God. 
Yeah, she's uh, she doesn't have a one track mind. She's got an eight track mind. Why she's and then I would do my uh, my 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 annoying girlfriend voice, which is a bad bad trope. And then uh and then I would uh press her nose, and you would hear the programs change, and she would fade out. And it was the uh, oh, it was it was the click click or the chunk chunk of changing from one track to another track, like an eight track. That was so funny. Oh, can, it was something like uh, uh when are you gonna take the garbage out? Why are you gonna take the clean the kitchen i've tried it yeah something like that okay hey let me write that down i'll, I'll put my eight track chunk back into my act yeah that's, that's what i should be doing in 2020 is eight track material <laughs> i was thinking about that yesterday and how like so many years later that's still such a super funny joke and there's so many jokes that i remember watching you do and uh, i thought this audience is getting these jokes this is fantastic what a wonderful they just sort of opened up everything for me by watching watching you oh. at uh, at that place in Roanoke that comedy club in Roanoke so what was it were you were you not to sound like too cliche here but honestly were you a funny kid I was a funny kid I was the youngest of three I was my parent my parents were older my brothers were basically out of the house I was very charming and I was small and weak. So I would make the, the other kids laugh instead of hit me. So you were, and you learned that as a sort of disarming quality. I, th- I, I think I, I did. I mean, I must have, cause I was, I mean, I was in school. I was very chameleonish and that I could hang out with the heads and the jocks and the brains and the normal kids and stuff. And everybody liked me cause I would tell dumb jokes. And, uh, but like my father was a barber and we had a barber shop in the front of our house. And I remember when I was a little kid, I would go in with this little tin cup and I would tell jokes to the guys on the chair and they would give me a nickel or a dime. Ah, tell them some stupid street joke. That was your first one nighter. Yeah. I still owe my age and 10% for that. Wow. No kidding. So but yeah, it was, it was fun. And, and my, my, my parents were funny. My, and my, they would let me stay up to watch. I would always watch Carson monologues with my dad and like, they'd let me stay up to watch mad, 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 mad world and Bob hope specials and stuff. And so I was, I was sort of, uh, uh I had an appreciation from stand up. And plus, uh, there was, there was always like Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and Dinah Shore. They had those afternoon shows afternoon. and there was, there were great comedians on there. And my parents would have the, my dad would have the TV on in the barbershop or my mom would be watching it. So I would, I'd get sort of like this passive stand-up coming in from the side. Huh. So. Yeah. Uh, I never thought I would be a comedian though. I always wanted to be a writer. I never knew I would be a comedian. What? So those are, those are some of the early influences. Like you just, you just ticked off there. The comedians that you saw on the talk shows and whatnot and Carson and that kind of thing. Who were some of the other um, really powerful influences for you early on? Are there, are there influences that like stick with you to this day? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I, I, unfortunately I was a huge Bill Cosby fan. I saw Bill Cosby live when I was 12. Oh. Uh, I, I, I love Steve Martin. I mean, I had a, a, an iron on shirt that said, you know, that had best fishes and wild and crazy guy on the back. You know, I mean, Steve Martin was, was sort of like a, a seismic thing. Cause he had that huge, huge album. He had let's get small. And he was like a stadium comic. I was, you know, like 11, 12 years old, 13, whatever. And, uh, but that he was also very funny. 
uh, uh, hmm, like, you know, stuff like Bugs Bunny and Firesign Theater, you can say all that stuff. But I think that as far as real influences got, I didn't really see anybody until I started working with comedians and going out to see actual comedians. When was you that? know, like, you, was you, were you in high school, college? Where, I mean, no, I couldn't get in. I, I would try to go out and whenever they would open a comedy club in York, Pennsylvania, I'd try to go out and get in and they wouldn't let me in because I wasn't old enough. I mean, I started when I was 20. I wasn't allowed to be in the clubs. But the uh, uh, drinking age. Yeah, drinking age. They would they, they let me slide in Baltimore because, you know, they, they're lawless. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was uh, the first show I that I that I saw before I did stand up. The first real live show that I saw was uh, was at Charm City, the club where I started in Baltimore. And uh, the headliner was Rita Rudner. The feature act was Jonathan Katz. And the uh, the MC was a guy named Bill McCuddy. You remember Bill McCuddy? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like it was they were all so good and they were all so sharp that you know it was like it was a good first show to see but then you know i would i would end up seeing you know bill hicks all the time and i would you know i would see uh uh will durst all the time and you i would see uh uh when i got to san francisco greg proops was just an eye-opener it was the same thing that you said about me and roanoke seeing proops on stage like oh my god you can do that you can get away with that Right. He was he was such a huge guy for me, uh, Greg Proops. Right, right. And, and uh, but but everybody you know, and Patton, you know, guys, my contemporaries are all huge influences on me. And, and, and I'm big fans of everybody that I that I came up with and I work with. If anything, you know, I was a comedy fan going in when I became a uh, comedian, I became even, a, a, I guess, a comedian fan because just you can see, you know, like a guitarist, you can see people coming up with different music on the same instrument. It's, right. uh, it's just very, it's, it's, I love comedy so much. I, that's sort of how I, I mean, there's some similarities. I, I love Bill Cosby, whether, I mean, there's all this controversy because of the. Because of his multiple rapes. <laughs> yeah, a little controversy. Not, well, what I'm, what I'm thinking <laughs> is it's somehow there's a, there's a distinction, which is, uh, either you can't, or it's not okay to say this person created some some good art if they pr- committed crimes. And yeah, I, that's a, that's a weird that's a weird kind of a thing. And I and I guess I don't agree with that. It's not meant to offend anybody, but I'm able to see that there is this person working in this domain as an artist is able to, and so that may be mean that may be that people who've committed criminal acts actually have the capacity to create some pretty pretty powerful uh, and effective art and whatever it is i saw the same thing happen on another uh, another a show that i watched where it wasn't okay to like picasso anymore because he was a sexist and that sort of thing and i and i just generally i, I don't agree with that i don't hold it against other people to hold that that opinion i get it but it's I um, I know for a fact that when I was a kid, I listened to I don't remember the name of the album. It's the one that has him on the cover with the uh, um, the soapbox derby go kart, and um, and the, he has the story about the chicken heart and uh, all those all those stories are just amazing. And the fat Al, early Fat Albert stuff. Or yeah, so, so he he, he wasn't not he wasn't not a great comedian, but he turned out to be a a, a a monster off stage. And it's it's you know I I wash my hands of that kind of stuff, and I appreciate the fact that that he was a he was a great artist before uh, before his horrible truth came to light. 
it's very it's very hard for me to uh, uh, as a uh, well not not hard for me it's very easy but it's like a, it's like a weird amputation like well Bill Cosby's gone oh really okay you know it's uh, and you know I've it, it's it is bizarre and I had a dream about it I don't want to be the guy talking about my dream but I had a dream that I was in a hotel like a, a big banquet room and it was dark and it was empty, big round tables with empty plates on them. And there was a, a door with a light and you could hear people in the hallway that like some, this thing had let out and there's Bill Cosby sitting at this table and he looks at me and, uh, uh, and I said, Hey, I know that you're going through some, some legal stuff, <laughs> but I just want to say, I always thought you were really funny and, and you were a big influence. And he, takes my hand in my dream and he says, don't go, please don't go. Don't leave me. Don't go. Don't leave me. And I start pulling my hand away and people in the door start looking in and I say, I have to get out of here. And I just let him go and woke up. And it was my brain saying, you're done with Bill Cosby. He's a serial rapist. Wow. It's, it was, I, I guess it was my brain just saying, you know, you just have to move on from this. You're not going to get into arguments about it. You're not going to have any redemption discussions. Just there's plenty of other funny comics that you can, that you can love. Oh, interesting. Well, so to to kind of just go back for just a minute, you had all these comics who were influences for you and started getting into the clubs a little bit before it was under, uh, at the age of 21. And then you finally relocated from the, the Washington, D.C. metro area, which is kind of where you you uh, you sharpened your original chops. You went out there to San Francisco and you uh, got to see guys who blew you away like Greg Proops. What was it, you know, I, I remember when you and I were in that same area there in the Washington, D.C. metro area and sort of the mid-Atlantic region and reaching out to, to yeah. in the area. You guys, um, you and Patton and a lot of the other guys um, came to to Virginia Tech there to go and work the room that, that I uh, started there. And because uh, you were usually... Oh, tech- buddies. Buddies, right. Which... Um, I don't know if, where he is, but I want to say thank you to Buddy if he's still around. And that was one of the oddest things to find out that apparently Buddy was, was uh, if this is true, I was told by other people that he was actually a, a uh, part of the same family as the, the Bundys of the, the Notorious. So, uh, that, yeah, Buddy, but he was Buddy Bundy. Right. So you, uh, I got, I got to say that was, uh, that room Buddies at Virginia Tech was one of the best ever rooms. It was like proto modern comedy room just one of the first non-comedy great comedy rooms i always had a great time there everybody was very very excited to get down there and i think the audiences were just such they were such good audiences and really hungry to just be there and be and participate and help make a really fine show yeah. i i felt really blessed with that and um well so you go out to san francisco and what was it that brought you out there well i knew from- all places san francisco well, I knew I, I knew all my life that San Francisco was a big comedy town. That it was like you know Lenny Bruce and and uh, the Purple Onion and the Holy City Zoo, and uh, I knew there were all, there was always a, a club scene there because you remember the the old newspaper Just for Laughs, the comedy newspaper. Sure, oh, yeah. It was a comedy newspaper that came out from San Francisco, and it had articles about comedy, whatever. But in the back, it had this invaluable list of all the clubs in the country and who was working there and what their numbers were. And the comedians would be able to see who was 
who got what chains and, and who was working what rooms. And uh, I just remember San Francisco had this just page of all these clubs. And I knew that if I went there that I could get good. I could just sort of sharpen stuff and I could go down to Los Angeles because I needed to be in Los Angeles eventually. And I figured I, that I was still sort of hacky in Baltimore and I just needed to get that hack off of me. Huh. San Francisco was very good because, I mean, I think the the first realization, and it was like a bad dream, even though I knew it was coming, but there was that moment when, and Patton had it too, where it's like, I'm watching these other comedians in San Francisco, all these new guys, these open mic guys and showcase guys and headliners, whatever, all the locals, and they're all so good. And I, and I just realized all my material, all, six years of stuff, seven years of stuff is useless. Everything I have is gone. I have to start all over from here. And it just, you had to, it was just adapt or perish. And I just wrote new stuff and wrote more stuff, kept writing, did clubs every night. It was fantastic. And, and sorry to babble about it, but the, uh, when I got there, Patton got there two weeks later, Mark Marin got there, I think a week after I did. And right after we moved there, all these clubs started closing the 94th Aero squadron, the daily planet, the other cafe, uh, all the big weird clubs just, just got shuttered. And, uh, there was really no, it's like the punchline and Cobbs were the, the big, uh, the big clubs out there. And so if we wanted to get stage time, we had to go to like weird open mics and poetry nights and spoken word nights. So we started going to coffee shops and more of those kind of rooms. And the poets hated us. The spoken word people hated the comics because people liked the comics. They were funny. And then some guy would get up there. No, I'm yelling about life and the government <laughs> like they don't want to hear that this one i was a guy was up there just doing a suitcase full of turds joke so they would get mad so if we wanted to get on stage we had to pretend to be like serious poets and and spoken word performers well, well, so uh, we wouldn't get chased out by the comic by the poets by the time you're there how many years in are you uh, as a comedian you said six years so you're six i start well i started in I started November 6, 1985 was my comedy birthday. And then I moved to San Francisco. I've never really, I think the six years, I moved to San Francisco in June 92. And then I was there till June 95. Do you think that it, you agree with that, the, uh, the sort of 10 years, 10,000 hours story? Do you think that that's true? To get really what, something or to get to a level of mastery of, of, of your craft, so to speak? Uh, I, well, I agree with it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would not, I didn't really hit, get get good until I was around 10 years old. I didn't really start to understand stuff. I mean, like I was in San Francisco having a good time, but I wouldn't do that material on stage now. Right. I mean, it was not that it was bad or anything, but it's like, Oh, okay. I know so much more than I did then. And even then I thought I was doing okay. But I've seen guys that do comedy for a year, two years, three years that are just head and shoulders above people that have been doing it for 20 years. You know, some people have it and some people don't. And the people that have it, that, that learn how to use it, like a, like a, they get good at the craft. They're unstoppable. Those, those are guys like, you know, those are your John Mulaney's and your Gaffigan's and your Patton's. What do you think uh, if you were to try to take that, that uh, secret sauce, that recipe, whatever it is, what, what is the it? What is that kind of the part of the X factor in, in the it? You know, I don't know. 
I think I, I think one thing a lot of uh, a lot of the big guys have going for them is there's not really a difference between them on stage or off stage that they're just uh, uh, on stage just dialed up a little bit. People that that are themselves are always. You know, even when they're doing material, you can tell when somebody's just being themselves. Uh, were you around when Chappelle was still in D.C.? I was. I remember going out and uh, I was going out to Garvin's. I'd go out to the open mic nights and sometimes I'd go out to the to the uh, the paid nights, the professional nights. And I do remember sitting in the back of the room. If you recall, uh, the stage is over in the corner, right? Yeah, Gar- yeah Garvin's Comedy Club in D.C., one step stage and then I'm back um, stage right in the far corner sitting in a chair behind a table and I'm watching uh, the show and this they bring this guy on they announce him as Dave Chappelle and up till then I think I'd heard his name but I had not seen him and I went oh this guy I've never uh, I've heard this guy's name but I've never seen him before I wonder what he's like and I remember watching him and thinking that this person is so at ease and commanding a rhythm that is, uh, to say it, he has a rhythm that is utterly infectious. The rhythm just, it's like the whole room dropped into the rhythm. It was yeah. rhythm. He wasn't, it, it, he wasn't really trying to meet the audience and go to their rhythm or anything like that. It was like, he just got on stage. He seemed like he was really being himself. And he had this rhythm that was like a, uh, it was like a mile wide river. It was so powerful. And that was even, I, I, he may have been a teenager at that point. If he not, was. He, yeah. And uh, he, Yeah. He's one of those guys that just makes everybody's heart sync up. You know, they all get in time with him. He, uh, the first, we saw him his first night on stage. The first night he ever went up uh, was at one of those uh, Tuesdays at Garvin's and they brought him up and I remember we were in the back, there was a bunch of us, and we were all looking at each other going, this guy is going to be huge. I mean, it was it sounds like a joke, but it's like, this guy is going to be a star. He was an instant natural. He sounded like he had been doing it for his whole life. It was just conversational, like he had sprung full grown as a theme from the brow of Zeus. Right. It was amazing. And then, you know, a few years later, he went to New York and took off. And he was always just a, always a sweet guy. Uh, and always himself on stage. I guess that's the it factor is that it has to be you. Yeah, I, there's definitely something to that. And I agree, Dave was always a, an affable and warm and friendly guy. And um, that that was, he just sort of radiated that quality. And yeah. I, I remember running into him again a um, couple times in San Francisco at the Punchline. And um, you, whoever you were, you weren't any different from him or anybody else is the way that he made you feel no matter how gifted he was and successful he was at the moment you were talking to him you felt like it was just you and dave having a conversation yeah which is a, a wonderful quality do you think that um because you said something earlier because he's a tremendous writer do you think that that writers can be comics comics can be writers and that sort of thing do you think that that's a moving back and forth in those roles is 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 possible and pretty easy or is it real work and not so possible all the time? Uh, I think when I was a comedian and I got my, I got my first real writing job was mad TV. I wrote on the pilot in the first four seasons of mad TV. And when I would get finished at night, I would go out and I would do Largo or diamond club or, you know, Genghis Cohen, or I would, the improv, I'd go out and do a club dates. But it got to a point where 
working on the staff was a little tiring. And by the time it was showtime, I just wanted to go home and uh, yeah, it's like, so, you know, I'm going to turn in tonight. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. So it, it uh, the scheduling kind of became a drag and it was sort of hard to close this, the, the sketch writing window and open the stand up window is like, by the time I had to actually walk on stage, I was like, wait, what, what, what bits was I thinking about? What material was I thinking about? Cause I was working on some, you know, Van Combe lady sketch for, for the show or whatever. Uh, but I, I, I see, I've seen, uh, uh, comedians turn into brilliant writers and I've seen writers that are just, just so funny that are, that go on stage and they do comedy, but it's not like stand up comedy. It's just like we were talking about with Chappelle. I think writers that do, that come from a writing background are more able to, to just go up and be themselves because they don't have, they never had to have that pose of being somebody else to get hired, you know, uh-huh. uh, and they can just write and do their material the way they wanted to. It's, it's different for everyone though, doc, you know how, you know how it is. Yeah. I, I, not, all, not all writers can be comics. Not all comics can be writers. Not all. I mean, I know musicians that are funnier than comics that don't do stand up. <laughs> well, now are you, uh, you know, do you, is it easier to make you laugh these days? Harder to make you laugh? Is it just as easy? What's, what's it like now after this many years as a, as a writer and a comedian. Oh, you know what I love? I love, la- I love laughter, doc. I just love to laugh. I'm a, I'm a laughter guy, but no, it's like, I love I, any jokes. I love, uh, I watch clips of comics on YouTube. Oh, that guy's great. She's fantastic. Oh my God. I can't believe that. Uh, there's funny jokes on Twitter. I laugh out loud. I show my wife, I read these jokes to her. It's, it's comedy is fun. That's the whole point. It's not a serious thing. It's, you know, I mean, I'm I'm sure if you're working in the, uh, uh, if you're a bricklayer, it's like, honey, check out my wall. Are you the, are you the, do you, uh, do you feel like it's ever the crowd's fault when they're, when you're, when you're on stage and you're not having a good set or it's not a good show? Or uh, is it in general, you're the kind of guy that takes the, the responsibility and says it was my work? Or is it a, a collaborative kind of thing? Uh, you know, I know that I know you're not supposed to blame the crowd. Uh, it's usually the case. It's usually my fault. I mean, I, I can tell you exactly where I, you know, hey, here's where I twisted my ankle. Here's where I fell off the pommel horse. Here's where I should have had more rosin. You know, uh, but uh, I've had nights where it's like this crowd can can blow me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like sometimes they're just bad, but uh, uh, it's I, you can't take it personally. You certainly can't take it personally. You can't take comedy personally, Doc. <laughs> do you? Uh, do you? Ha- do you? So you still go out occasionally and do stand-up sets. You're still doing sets and doing and, and performing, like you I said. I do. I do. You know, uh, I was supposed to open for Patton in uh, Anaheim before the uh, the 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 lockdown and all the and, and stand up went away and uh but yeah it's like i would go out and do it when i can't like i said i have a i'm in my 50s and i have a six-year-old kid so i'd rather just be in bed when the shows are getting started but yeah i do comedy when i can because every time i'm on stage i'm like why am i not doing this every night uh, is that kind of feeling yeah it's always always fun and it's like i would like we were talking about earlier when i would be writing on a show uh, and it was hard to get into the head of doing stand up at night. Uh, I would, 
I would, uh, when I, those shows would go on hiatus, I would go out on the road for two or three months and I would go do my old, I'd go up to San Francisco and do the punchline or Cobbs or whatever. And I, those are always, those were Wednesday through Saturday or Sunday gigs. And the Wednesday show was so much fun. It felt like I was just like kind of stretching. And then Thursday and Friday, you could just see it getting so much better and so much fun and, and your brain slotting things and moving stuff around, remembering little tricks you learned. And then by Saturday, it's like, oh, I just want to keep doing this. The more you do it, the better you get at it. It's, uh, it's a, a negative tolerance. Yeah. Well, so you love the stand-up comic. What would it, uh, is it possible for you to get back on stage? on a regular basis frequently because you, you uh, what that I, was well that was my plan because i i'm between shows i was like yeah you know what i don't i don't have a, a staff thing right now when i do write it's it's usually uh stuff that i can do from wherever so i was getting ready to go out on the road and uh then the the virus uh, and now now and now nobody's on the road and nobody's on well people are on staff and writing from home but it's all it's all sea changing right now and people are kind of don't know how it's going to shake out. So when you, when you're writing, what are the, I, cause I want to kind of get into some of the details if that's all right. As, as a sure. and a writer, are you the kind of guy that, uh, uh, what are some of the tools of the trade for you? Are you a, are you like a pen and pencil paper guy or do you use your phone? Do you use all the above? Do you use a recorder? Do you, I mean, what, what are some of the tools that you use to, to, to work with? Uh, you know, when I, if I think of a joke, I text myself and then, uh, write it down on a little, I write stuff down on index cards and then, uh, uh, bang it into a bit in my head, just kind of talk it over when nobody's around or when people are around and look at me funny. And then, uh, would do it on stage and I would know what, I, I guess that's it. It was, that's as far as stand up goes. And then when sketch or jokes or anything like that comes up, I just write it on a computer. I'm pretty close to the computer. Ah, okay. So you're you're actually using a your you take the idea, the genesis of the idea. What what when uh, when you get an idea, have you thought about um, not where it comes from, but how it happens? That uh, is it. Uh, is it typically a moment? Is it something? What are some of the ways in which it comes to you? The um, or that you that you think funny or you get funny. What are some of the different ways for you? Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It does. It's like I. I guess. I guess if I sometimes I'll just see something or read something, and my brain will grab a word, and it all goes back to what I was talking about earlier with my being conditioned to to, to get laughs for my defense mechanism and survival in school, and my brain tries to turn everything into a joke, and it's not fun sometimes but my brain will find a joke for almost anything. But sometimes my brain will go, Hey, check this one out. And then, uh, Hey, now I have a bit about squirrels. So do you have the experience of coming up with, um, frequently uh, inappropriate jokes and situations because of the automaticity of the, of the kind of the, the joke function that the way it functions in you, the joke creating function? Yes. I've said horrible things in front of my girlfriend's parents thinking I was hanging out with other comics. And that was, <laughs> that was, that was a big no, no. I, I won't re, won't repeat it. I thought it was funny at the time. I was a kid. I was, the, the thing, one thing I'm glad I've grown out of is uh, uh, is my youth. <laughs> Just do the dumbest shit when I was young. I don't. I wish my body was young, but man, ooh, 
the no wisdom. Not that I have any now, but Jesus. What's so what's better, better filters now that I'm older. I think that's one good thing about doing comedy is uh, uh, teaches you uh, filters. One of the things we've been talking about is writing comedy and then taking it to stage and performing the comedy. And from my perspective, oh, right, 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 writing it. But I'm wondering how often do you take um, circum situations that occur to you that maybe are un um, unexpected, like things that happen to you in your life that are unexpected and they're biographical, and then you bring those to stage. Uh, well, well, you know, a lot that, of I well, you know, I have a I have a wife, and then I have a comedy wife. The comedy wife is the one that I write for. Uh, but, you know, I don't talk about my wife or kids. Yeah, I have, I, I'll, I'll say, hey, I have a kid. And I'll use the kid to springboard into a joke about magic school bus or whatever. You know, uh, but I, I try to, I, I don't know if I do it on purpose. I keep my, my personal life sort of at a comedy arm's length when I'm on stage. Oh. I mean, I've, I, I, I've talked about, I've, I've done sets about having prostate cancer before and those I've done it a few times, but it's, and those are obviously very, very personal and stuff, but it's all full of dust, dumb, weird stuff that, you know, my little, whatever, uh, uh, little curly cues, my brain puts on it that makes it interesting and not just a guy talking about cancer, but I try to stay away from that. It's like, I don't, I'm one of, uh, as far as my comedy goes, I like to just, be uh, uh i like to write jokes and just write funny jokes and have the, just jokes they don't have to be about anything just jokes i just like funny jokes no i don't you? really have an, a personal agenda with the stuff maybe i should maybe i'd be huge <laughs> have you have you ever tried to do that like have you ever had a period of your life where you said well i'm going to go ahead and do that or i mean i know you just mentioned talking about is you you mentioned prostate cancer that's something that you went through um and you're you're fine and healthy now, but uh, have you, was there ever a period in your life where you thought, you know, I'm going to kind of go and do this thing? I'm going to start talking about these events of my life, and you backed off, or you know, I I don't know if I did. I think I I, I think I tried. There was I was doing uncabaret shows a lot, and that was the old Luna Park days. And uncabaret for for people who don't know was one of the one of the the proto alternative comedy rooms where comedians would just throw material away and they would talk about stuff that happened to them. And uh, I had lots of stuff like that, but I found when at the end of the day, I just would rather write jokes and do weird bits and stuff like that. I, I you know, not to be contrary or anything, but just, I, I found that fit me a little more because I, I hated opening up. Because as much as I like people laughing at me, I don't like people laughing at me. You know what I mean? Sure. I, well, I, well, maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't make that assumption. You like people <laughs> laughing at you because you're being funny, but not, may, maybe not in a disparaging or... Yeah, I mean, I, nobody, nobody likes to be judged. And I'm very, I'm very just self-conscious about everything about myself. And, and my, my, very, my laughing uh, Teflon shield of I don't care is obviously a front as it is with everyone, I think. And it's like, I just don't like to, as, as open as I like to be, I don't like to open myself up. So, I don't know, it's just, a, and, and as I get older, I'm, I'm glad. It's, it's almost like a, a, the way I limit, I limit my family on social media. I don't want to bring them into, into my sordid jokes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure, sure. 
Now, when I was a lot younger and doing stand-up comedy, I, I learned a lot about um, sort of how to think and how to act as a comedian. And I think I probably took on some bad, bad habits. Like there was a brief period of time where I think what I learned from other comics was somehow it was acceptable or cool or something like that to be at the back of the room and to, and to, to criticize other comedians who you thought were not such good comedians. But there was a period of time where I outgrew that, where I, yeah. I reflected and I said, you know what? I don't feel like being the guy on stage who knows that there or knows or doesn't know that there's comedians sitting in the shadows in the back of the room who are just uh, eviscerating me from the, from the, uh, from the back of the room. And because I'm a comedian and uh, who am I to judge anyway, when it comes to somebody else's work ethic and their process and what they're doing, you know, one of those guys, it, there was a period of time where it was sort of okay to, to, to give a uh, carrot top a hard time. But the truth is, the guy has some funny material and he makes a lot of people laugh really hard. And the guy is actually a really pretty nice, friendly guy. And he's a good, he's a good friend of mine. When he, uh, I was working on at midnight a few, uh, on comedy central and he was one of the guests and, uh, he had a wonderful time and he invited all the writers out to see his show at the Luxor. He's got that residency at the Luxor. And we all went out to see his show, and it could not have been funnier. It was super tight, full of jokes. He's one of the best prop comics. Yeah, he, he had a joke about the Blue Man Group that laid me out. He's a uh, he's a sweetheart, and people that people that are down on him don't know how funny he is. It's a, and and I I think this this goes to something that I that I've always felt, and I think that something that I learned, like you said, when you're in the back of the room and you're dragging other comics, it's like that's a that's that's like it's mean and it's i know a lot of comics do it and i've done it and it's just mean you feel bad about it you grow out of it and you learn that you have to be objective about other comedians because if you apply your own personal tastes and values to everyone nobody's going to live up and nobody's going to be funny and you're going to be bitter if you think if but if you can watch other comics and go i don't think this guy is the best but i get what he's doing hey you know hey that hey the crowd like that joke what what's he doing that i'm that they're laughing at if he's not that funny. You know what I mean? It's like you have a million thoughts about stuff. Just enjoy comedy. Just enjoy jokes. People trying to make you laugh. There are guys that suck, of course, but you know. <laughs> are there are there um, qualities? So as a performer, are there qualities uh, or attributes in a club for you that really make a club a stellar room? Like what are the things that stand out for you? Because there, I mean, I've noticed coming from the theater that there are certain things for me that that I really appreciate when I see them in a room. What is it, what are the kinds of things that make a, a good club a good club for you as a comedian? Uh, a quiet bar area is nice. Uh, and uh, I, I love a good wait staff. Good, a good wait staff is the key to any club. If you have a, a good staff and they're all friendly and upbeat, then that sort of trickles down. You get that, everybody gets on the same sort of emotional wave. But as far as like a layout, a nice dark room, uh, uh, nice sound system, you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't need a big green room. Parking is nice. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I think I think a key is just uh, the taste of the booker. I mean, the best clubs are the ones that have the best comics. The club I started at was Charm City Comedy Club in Baltimore. And it was the A-est of the A rooms. It was Bill Hicks and Paula Poundstone and Kevin Meany and Rosie O'Donnell and Jonathan Katz and Rita Rudner and Wayne Cotter and Ronnie Shakes and uh, uh, 
and Bill Hicks drunk and Bill Hicks sober. All, all that stuff came through. Bob Summerby and Dan Rose and the, the owners of the club were great comedians. Uh, all those guys, Jeff Martyr, you know, people you've never heard of that were Will Durst. The first time I ever met Will Durst, I was driving down from Pennsylvania to see him perform. And I saw him walking down the street and I pulled over in my red Honda and I said, hey, are you Will Durst? And he said, yeah. I said, I'm driving to see your show. Do you need a ride? You're not going to kill me, are you? <laughs> I said, no, no. And he gets in the car and he goes, can I smoke? I said, yeah, of course. I introduced myself and he goes, uh, how long have you been doing comedy? I said, I don't know. I think of you know, six months ago. You've been on stage a hundred times. No, not yet. Ah, uh, you're an embryo. <laughs> and then I just watched him. We've been friends ever since. He's a, he's a sweetheart. He's king of San Francisco too. And yeah. And uh, and and then him become him and his wife Debbie Durst are, are good friends of mine. It's the other. That's another thing I love about. I'm sorry, I'm all over the place, Doc. That's all right. one thing I love about comedy is uh, the comedians are great. They're wonderful friends of mine. I have wonderful friends. There is a, a kind of quality amongst comedians, uh, at least in my in my experience, that they they are generally friendly and and uh, supportive of one another. And there isn't a lot of that. I don't see a, a, a lot of that sort of like squabbling and cat fighting and that kind of thing. Comedians generally have a kind of a quality of respect for one another and appreciation for one another. And I think yeah. You know, it's not as cutthroat as it used to be. I remember in the, in the eighties and nineties, it was it, on the road. It got a little, uh, got a little, little, uh, alpha beta, you know, just, uh, uh, dudes that were very, very driven and very serious, you know, and funny on stage. You know, driven and serious off stage, and it's, it's. I think I think the the late eighties and the nineties and the eighties when the boom kind of started to to go away a little bit. That's when the road and and the the showcase rooms kind of diverged. <clears throat> Excuse me, where they would uh, you would get the guys that were just on the road, and then you would get the guys that were just in New York or just in L.A. or just in Chicago or San Francisco. You know, and never the twain shall meet. And then if you were in San Francisco and you would go out on the road, everybody would circle around like, you know, like the Warriors would, you know, come out to play, checking everybody out, gang stuff, you know. Well, if you oh. had a chance to kind of do it over again, would you do it over again? And would you be, be go through the same sort of become a stand-up comedy, uh, a stand-up comedian and a writer? Or, I mean, if you really got a chance to be young again, so to speak? as if you're not young now, because I tend to see you as youthful. You're wiser, but but uh, what, would you do the same thing or, or not, do you think? You know what, I, I, I love it. Everything, that, everything that's good in my life has come from being a comedian and doing comedy and uh, uh, where I've gotten to travel the world and see amazing things. And like I said, I have brilliant friends that make me happy and uh, I get to, I get to crack jokes and write TV shows. It's, I have no complaints, you know, it's, uh, uh, uh but if I had to do it all again, I'd be a dentist. <laughs> Seriously. Or that was that another, no, joke? I think my dad wanted me to be a dentist. He was always disappointed, to be a dentist. but he was, he was very proud of me at, at the end though. He's he, no, 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 no complaints. I got to ask you when, with growing up with family in the, in uh, a dad is a barber. Did you learn to cut hair? <laughs> No, no, I cut my, uh, I had a girlfriend and she goes, can you cut my hair? And I said, no, I can't cut hair. She was just cut my hair. And I cut her hair and she was furious. She was like, you butchered it. I ruined, I ruined it, ruined her hair. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I told you I can't cut hair. It skips a generation, I guess. <laughs> but I'm, I'm left-handed. I can't, you know, I can't do that kind of stuff. I can't handle 
money. I'm not like a, a money guy. I can't shuffle cards or handle cards. Are you exclusive? Are, are you exclusive? my lot in life? Generally, exclusively left-handed, like you, um, like me. I'm I'm kind of kind of ambidextrous in the sense that I write with my left hand, um, but I throw with my right arm. Do you throw with your right arm? If you were to throw, throw you know what I I played baseball. <laughs> I played ball. And I would throw with my left hand, but I also caught with my left hand. So I would have to catch the ball, throw my mitt down, and then throw the ball. And it was always uh, just a uh, not the best. But it's like you know, I'm very I'm very left-handed, but I play guitar right-handed. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. There is some crossover or, or ambidextrous handedness. Yeah, and I my dad had a, a golf driving range in the upstairs of our barn, and I would uh, hit golf clubs right-handed, bowl left-handed. You know me, I'm a big sports guy, golfing and bowling all the time. <laughs> so what about uh, when you score in rollerball, uh, what hand are you using there? <laughs> oh, man, it's, it's hard to think about when you think, uh, which leg do I start going up steps with? Hmm. I, think I'm, I think it's my left. So Let's take a look at that clip. What kinds of things, like uh, comedy has afforded you a lot of different opportunities. Um, in terms of writing, I, one thing I don't know is I know you've written a lot of stuff, a lot of comedy material. Have you gone into the realm of writing uh, teleplays, screenplays, plays, things like that? Uh, you know, I write a lot of sketch TV. I write for, I've written for game shows. I just finished writing for a Ron Funch's Quibi game show called Nice One, which is like a reverse of a roast where you have to say nice things about everything. Uh -huh. It's very challenging, actually, a lot of fun. But uh, and then I wrote uh, I wrote forty eight episodes of a Chinese children's cartoon. Uh, but uh, Pat and I wrote uh, wrote a B movie that was never made about a uh, Otto and George killing people. Remember Otto and George, right? The, the, the comedy team, the yeah, yeah X rated ventriloquist. Yeah, that never that never saw the light of day. I've written a lot of stuff that hasn't seen the light of day. I've written, you know, uh, written spec scripts. I've written my own scripts. I've written a couple of movies that just go nowhere. Do you? Yeah, it's just like I write a lot of stuff. Do you tend to uh, keep that material and file it away, or do you throw some of that stuff stuff out? You know, I think uh, I'm not against recycling jokes, but like, uh, if you're writing a script, usually the jokes in it are very specific to the setup. Right. It's not like I could. Like on At Midnight, which was a, a topical internet game show, you would get a setup that would be, you know, uh, you know, uh, Iken has cheeseburger cat. What would uh, John McAfee say to che has cheeseburger cat? Like the setups are so outlandish that you couldn't pull that punchline and use it anywhere else. It would be like one of those deep sea fish. It would just like dissolve on the deck because there's no pressure holding it together. <laughs> so it's, I, I think, you know, it, if if the joke doesn't work, or if you write a joke and it doesn't work, write another joke. It's easy. I love just write another joke. It's writing jokes. Now, are, do you put in time every day in writing? Or I do. Yeah, I do. I Twitter. It sounds like Twitter isn't actually you know certainly not a, a a treadmill or anything. But I write jokes for Twitter, which keeps me sharp. It's a lot of fun. I see other people writing jokes, uh, uh, and that entertains me. And uh, uh, but yeah, I'll I'll work on jokes for that. I'll work on stand up stuff. I 
just piecemeal on a script here, piecemeal on a script there, especially during quarantine because my kids are home homeschooling them and stuff. So my my ethic has changed over the last couple of months where it's just like I write uh, in a blast when I can or if I come up with a joke, oh, go and tweet it. But, you know, it's just, just trying to stay on my toes a little bit. Twitter's a good speed bag for joke writing. If this, were, if this situation as it is right now with the sort of uh, lockdown and that kind of thing were to continue for an extended period of time, have you thought much about how things um, are going to be affected uh, over that period of time in, in the entertainment industry and in comedy in general? Well, I think it's it's going to be a while before the clubs open up. It's going to be a while before audiences are, are going to want to go back in. I mean, I, I would think maybe... Uh, I don't blame people for wanting to go back to the clubs and I don't want blame people for wanting things to go back to normal, but I think you're going to get, it's going to be hard to fill clubs. And, and and I think that when the clubs do reopen, it's going to be hard for comedians because uh, do you know how, when, when an ambulance is coming and everybody pulls over to the side and the ambulance goes by and then everybody kind of jockeys for a position to get ahead of everybody when the ambulance goes by, I think the ambulance is going by right now. And everybody is going to jockey for their positions and you're going to get more established acts are going to go back into the clubs first. Uh, smaller fry are going to get fried a little bit. They're going to have to go find other ways to do stuff. And it, it's uh, the clubs are going to get more selective and, uh, uh, you know, and more intense, I think. But yeah, it's all going to be different. I don't know how it's going to shake out, Doc. It's really it's a it's a sea change for this whole industry, and it's a, a very bizarre and and a little little vertiginous and unsettling. Yeah, I have a sense though that somehow things are going to end up being um, that I have a sense that we will adapt, and somehow things are going to get be improved or better in some some ways. Definitely, without a doubt, that tends to be the case with adaptation. But Lena, I'm, I'm noticing that we've got just a minute or two here. If someone wants to get a hold of you, they can find you on Twitter by just typing your name in. Yeah, Blaine Capach, B-L-A-I-N-E-C-A-P-A-T-C-H. And if somebody wants to find out more about you or wants to reach out to you, is Twitter the place or is there another way to get in touch with you too and find out find you on the web? Um, you know, I think I, I just do everything on Twitter. I stay off Instagram. I, I just, uh, uh, I don't go on Facebook. I don't have a website. It's uh, I just Twitter's a good outlet, and it's enough. It's enough enough of a keyhole to look out of. Very good, Blaine. Lily, thank you so much for making the call today. And uh, I, I've just had so much fun. I learn every time I we have these conversations. I listen intently. I have a lot of respect for you. I think you're one of the funniest comics out there. A fantastic writer, and uh, so um, I really appreciate it. And I uh, I say this to almost all the people that I interview, I do want you to come back for another, another conversation. And I hope you will. Doc, I would, I would love to keep talking. I would, I could talk to you for hours. I, I think we did once when we went to Youngstown, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but thank you for having me. I love you, doc. Uh, this is, this is a blast. This is a good Sunday afternoon. All right, my friend, you take care. That was Blaine Kapatch, everyone. Say goodbye. We'll see you again. I'm Robert Barham. This is the Robert Barham show. Tune in every Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. at Fairfax Public Access's Radio Fairfax. We will do it again soon.